0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Grab a Bible, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be, Revelation chapter 2. If we met before, my name is Tim, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It is good for my soul, I don't know if it's good for yours, to sing about how we are not a talent show and then to have mics give out. It's just good. It's a good reminder that we are here as a family, not as a performance. Um, Revelation chapter 2, we're just going there again, so let's pray because we're going to need help um, as we look at this church of Pergamum. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you that you are kind to us, good to us, near to us. Lord, as we gather with your people, Lord, we are not doing this to earn something from you or to get something that we don't already have from you in Christ Jesus, Lord, but we come as grateful recipients of your grace, your mercy, your kindness to us. Lord, you say that it is not the, doc, it's not the well that need a doctor, it's the sick, and those who come to you well aware of their brokenness are the ones who receive forgiveness and cleansing and life again. And so, Lord, we come to you as the needy, and we come to you as the sick, sick with sin, sick with hurt, sick with pain and grief and sorrow, and I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to meet us. God, would you do what you've done for so long and take your word and put it into our hearts such that we are changed. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 uh, One of my favorite preachers that I got to sit on for a couple of years used to say when there was a particularly difficult sermon he was about to preach, Lord, help us to say amen, and when we can't say amen, help us to say ouch. And I don't know about you, but this series has felt a little bit like that, right? Like, Lord, help us to say amen, and when we can't say amen to these difficult words from Revelation, help us to say a godly, holy, Holy Spirit-empowered ouch. And we're going there again today, just fair warning. So we're continuing our series, if you're new, uh, just by way of reminder through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And we're examining these letters. So John, who's the last living disciple of Jesus, has been cast out to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. He has this vision where the text says he's caught up in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he writes the words of Jesus, seven letters to seven churches in seven ancient, ancient cities, what is now modern day Turkey. And these cities made up the ancient Roman postal route. And so we've been exploring these letters asking, what do ancient letters to ancient churches have to say to modern Christians here today in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2023? And with each week, we've landed at sort of this gut check assessment question. And so week one, we looked at Ephesus, the forgetful church, and we asked ourselves, have we abandoned our first love? we full of religious duty and action and, and things, but not caught up in the miraculous love of God for us and us for him in return. And then last week, week two, we looked at Smyrna, the suffering church, and we asked this question, are we willing to suffer for Jesus? Are our entire lives set up to buffer us from pain, or are we willing to sacrifice for the name of Christ? And this week, we're continuing to letter number three, right up the street-ish miles from Smyrna in the city of Pergamum. Now, just to set up the letter for us, let's talk about Pergamum as a city. So Pergamum as a city can be described as a place of political prominence and pagan worship. Political prominence and pagan worship. So let's think about political prominence. Pergamum was the official capital of, the, of, the, of Asia Minor for 200 plus years. Roman historian Pliny at one point referred to it as, quote, the most distinguished city in all Of Asia. It was extremely loyal to Rome and to the worship of the Roman emperor. So much so, in fact, so today, if you wanted to host the Olympics, right, if you were a country or a city that wanted to host the current Olympic Games, like coming up next summer, you would get together and submit a proposal to the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. And it would say things like, here's the stadiums we're going to build, and here's how we're going to house people, all of that. Well, in the ancient days, if you wanted to host the Olympics, you would submit plans for how miraculously great of a temple you were going to build to the emperor. That was like your submission. We'll host the Games. Here's the Temple, we're going to build so when people come for the games, they can worship you in all of this splendor and glory. Pergamum, in the decade leading up to this letter, won the honor twice as a city. So it's prominent and loyal to the worship of the Roman emperor, but it was also loyal to the worship of the Roman gods. One of the main Roman gods that Pergamum worshipped was the god Dionysus. Dionysus was known as the god of wine, bliss, and joy. You can see it on the screen behind me. Dionysus had a temple, and next to that temple was a giant amphitheater. And what worshippers of Dionysus would do is every month or every two months is they would show up in this amphitheater, and a band would get onto that little stage down here that's now all covered by grass, and they would play a single-note song for as long as humanly possible Possible. They could hold this note. And when the note finished, everyone in the amphitheater would get as drunk as possible and do whatever they needed to do to experience a level of joy that Dionysus would be glorified with. That was the worship going on in the city of Pergamum. That is the setting for this letter in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. This place is so wicked, so steeped in the worship of the Roman emperor and the worship of false gods that Jesus starts the letter to the church this way. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We're going to come back to that at the end. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. All right, pause there. Can you imagine? Like you're sitting in this little house church in Pergamum and a messenger shows up. Hey, we've got a letter from John. He actually says it's the words of Jesus. And you're like, awesome, sweet. Let's open it up, see what it says. Hey, by the way, it's me, Jesus. You live in the homeland of Satan. Awesome. (laughs) That's the setting of Pergamum. That's how wicked and evil this city is. Keep reading verse 13. Yet, Jesus says, you hold fast my name you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus starts similarly to how he starts the letter to Smyrna, right? I see your suffering. Like I see the pain you were going through living in a pagan culture. And yet some of you are refusing to give in. You're refusing to say Caesar is Lord or Dionysus is Lord. You're worshiping me. And I see how you're suffering because of it. He references Antipas, and we don't know a lot about him. The text doesn't say. Historical accounts seem to point to Antipas being a pastor in the church at Pergamum about a decade earlier, who the Romans killed because he was casting out too many demons, which is a great way to go down, right? He's just going along the road, casting out too many demons. The Romans are like, you're too, this is too much, and they kill him. And Jesus is encouraging the church. I saw even when they killed your leader, And led him into a horrific suffering death, you did not deny the faith. Now, at this point, you might be expecting the letter to go the same way as Smyrna, right? Hold fast, stay true, don't give in. Not so much. Keep reading, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus says, I see that some of you are suffering and holding fast. I see that some of you are holding on to my name, not giving in. You're worshiping me. You're pursuing me. But there are others of you who are giving in. We're not holding to the name of Jesus, but to the teachings of Balaam. And we're not holding to the teachings of Jesus, but the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So to understand this, let's talk about these two groups for just a minute. First, let's start with Balaam. So Balaam was a prophet, meaning he spoke to God's people for God or on behalf of God, who lived 1,400 years before this letter in the nation of Israel. His story can be found, if you want to read it this week, all the way back in Numbers chapter 22. Numbers 22. It's a really fascinating story. There's a talking donkey and an angel from heaven. It's really quite Uh, literary biblical gold. But the summary version of the story of Balaam is this. Balaam started godly. He was a good prophet, spoke the words of God to God's people, and eventually he grew weary In those days, to be a good prophet who spoke for the Lord wasn't very popular because often you had to say hard messages and hard things. And so eventually, a foreign king, Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, says, hey, Balaam, come over here. I will take care of you. I'll give you whatever you want. I'll provide for you. You can live out the rest of your days in luxury. All you have to do is curse the people of Israel. All you have to do is speak curse over the people and you can come live with me and chill for the rest of your life. So, Balak, so Balaam tries. He actually opens his mouth and when he goes to curse the people of Israel, God actually changes what comes out of his mouth and instead of cursing, it's blessing. And so he goes back to Balak, and he's like, I tried. <laughs> my bad, I tried. God literally, like, literally changed the words coming out of my mouth. And so he says, but here's the thing, Balak. if you can't get them in this way, I've got a plan. You see, the Israelites love to give in to idol worship. They've got a track record of sacrificing and worshiping other things besides the one true God. And so instead of cursing them, why don't you just tempt them with some of your pagan worship? Why don't you just tempt them with some of the sexual immorality of your culture? And Balaam does this, and this is what we read about Balaam in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter says about him, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, and they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor." Who have loved gain from wrongdoing. So what John's doing in Revelation two is saying there are some within the church who are doing this type of teaching. And what he means by this type of teaching is this. This is the the teaching of Balaam. Do whatever you want, as long as it feels good. That's the teaching of Balaam happening in the church of program. Do whatever you want. I know God said this. I know that he, he told you to live this way and not this way. I know that he's told you what his design for things like sex and worship and how you spend your money, all of these things. I know that you know what those are, but do whatever you want as long as it feels good. What matters is what you want. What matters is what's going to set you up for the best, most trouble-free life. The Nicolaitans are slightly different, but similar outcomes. The Nicolaitans are a group which was started by a man named Nicholas. Nicholas, if you go to Acts chapter 6, was one of the original deacons chosen by the first church elders to take care of the widows, Acts chapter 6. He was given a position of prominence because he was trustworthy, he was a man of character, a man ready to serve, but over the years, he started to have some theological shifts. He started believing and then teaching what's often been referred to in the church as antinomianism, anti-namas, anti-law. What that teaching is, is a false teaching that says, if salvation is a free gift from God, right? If we are saved by grace through Jesus, it doesn't really matter then how you live because God accepts you anyways. That's the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's this, do whatever you want. Jesus is full of love and grace. So the teachings of Balaam, right? Do whatever you want, as long as it makes you feel good and gets you ahead in life. Nicolaitans, do whatever you want. The gospel's free, right? Jesus is full of love and grace. It's what the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Jesus is going to forgive you. Why does it matter how you live? It sounds really appealing, directly contradicts the Bible. Look at Romans 6. Paul says this, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means how can we who died to sin still live in it? The gospel is the good news. We're free, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. We're set free to live holy lives for Christ. And so these are the two false teachings catching on in the church at Pergamum. Do whatever you want. As long as it feels good, do whatever you want. Jesus is full of love and grace. And underneath both of those false teachings is this desire. How do we escape persecution? That's what's happening in the church of Pergamum. Hey, we see if we're faithful to Jesus and Jesus alone, if we worship him and not Caesar as Lord, we're going to suffer. We're going to experience pain and suffering. What if we just kind of mix the two? Like, what if we created sort of like a Jesus and kind of faith? Like, what if we had Jesus and we worshiped him on Sundays and we gathered in the house church? And then on Saturdays, we also went and like, we're not going to fully participate in the Dionysus party, just like enough so that our neighbors kind of get off our backs. It's just Jesus and sort of faith. In other words, this is what I want to spend the rest of our time in this morning. The church at Pergamum is the compromising church. Church at Pergamum is the compromising church. How do I live with a foot in both camps? How do I live with Jesus in this part of my life and whatever I want to do on this part? Both groups are trying to have this both and kind of faith. I'll I'll do the church things. I'll do the Christian thing. I'll do all of that. And then I'll also get to do what I want, just like in minimal amounts that my conscience doesn't fully freak out about so that my neighbors get off my back or so that I can avoid suffering. So they start justifying it they start compromising and then they start believing that it's okay. And so it looks like this. Hey, hey, we can go to the, the Dionysus party. We don't have to participate. All right, let's just like, let's participate like a little bit. Okay, okay, maybe, maybe just a little bit more. Okay, I know we shouldn't dive all in, but Jesus died for us and God loves us and it feels good and he created me with these desires and surely he wouldn't give me desires he didn't want me to act on, so what's the problem? Different reasons why, different false teaching, same outcome, compromise with sin. They are not taking the call to wholly set apart lives for Jesus seriously. And so I just wanna ask us this question, do you see yourself in the church of Pergamum at all? Do you you see this pull in your heart? Do you see this pull in your life towards a sort of Jesus and kind of life? Like, I want Jesus. He offers me peace. He offers me forgiveness. He promises to take care of me. Eternal life sounds awesome. I want that. But these other things look fun too. They're, they're pretty enjoyable, and after all, salvation is a free gift by grace, right? And so maybe I can have the Jesus and life. Maybe I, maybe I can. Maybe I can have Jesus and sacrificing my family on the altar of my career. Maybe I can have Jesus and just like a, a tinge of stinginess and greed towards my finances. Or Jesus and, you know, just one extra glance at that attractive person at the gym or the grocery store. Jesus and maybe just like a little bit of fooling around with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Do you see any areas of compromising with sin in your life? Are there ways that you are not taking seriously the call to holiness as you should? Any any areas you just sort of let us slip by in the grand scheme of things, asking, "Does it does it really matter? Like that little thing? Does it is it really gonna mess everything up? Is it really gonna derail my life with God? Like I, I feel pretty good, anyways." Any areas where one year ago, you would have been convinced this is completely against the scriptures, and now somehow, some way, your actions have led you to suddenly believe it's okay. You've justified it, you've twisted the scriptures, you've distorted it just enough to to feel good about what you've already decided you wanted to do. Here's the problem with that, for, for Pergamum and for us, is that Jesus does not tolerate Compromise. What well, to us may be a no big deal, it's just a little thing, is a incredibly big deal to our Savior. Just look at this with me, verse 12 again. It says unto the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The two edged sword here points back to the picture of Jesus that we're given in Revelation chapter 1. It's the one who John says has the two edged sword coming out of his mouth. And it's a way of saying that Jesus comes as the definitive, righteous, and fair judge of all mankind. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, There are some who are holding fast. You're staying steady. You're not giving in. You're not compromising your faith. And yet there's others of you who are compromising. You're giving in to these false teachings. You're living in unholy ways. And I come as the judge. I mean, it's, it's strong words here, right? Like we want to like out-theologize what the scriptures say. But look at what Jesus says. I come to make war on you. That is a difficult thing. That's one of those, if, if we talked back to sermons, we would say like, oof. It's tough, Right? And I think if you're anything like me, there's this kind of gut reaction that's like, well, that doesn't really seem fair. Like Jesus is the love guy, right? Like Jesus is the one who loves us and died for us and cares for us and gives us peace. Like he's, he's that. This seems like a little bit overdrawn. Like make war on those who are compromising even just a little bit. I mean, after all, if any church can be okay compromising, it's Pergamum who are literally getting their lives threatened. Can't they have like a little bit of fun on Saturday before they risk their lives on Sunday? Surely, Pergamum, right? Why is this such a big deal to Jesus? Maybe you're not asking that question. Maybe it's just me. Let's talk about why. Two reasons. Two reasons why Jesus takes compromise so seriously. Two reasons why Jesus hates compromise, comes to make war on those who compromise. Number one, he is jealous for his glory. First reason why Jesus takes compromise so seriously is that he is jealous. For His glory, You see, when you and I put our faith in Christ, we are captured by his grace and we trust in him as Savior and Lord. He makes a claim over us as his possession. And this is a good thing. It's a, it's a glorious thing. We were his enemies. Now we're his people. We had no home and now we have an eternal inheritance of a kingdom. We were slaves to sin and he sets us free. But part of that claiming as his own means he rules on the throne of our hearts and our lives. And as we live and move and have our being in the world, it is meant to say accurate, true, right things about just how glorious he is. Because you go about your Tuesday and you face whatever faces you in work or in home or in relationships. That's meant to say accurate, true, glorious things about Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're my people who I identify with, then your life should be truthful. And by truthful means should give me the glory that I am deserved because Jesus first and foremost, spoiler alert is about himself more than he's about us. You're like, what did I walk into today? Let me just show you this. Okay. Jesus is first and foremost about Jesus. He's first and foremost about his glory. He is first and foremost about him being made much of in the earth. Even your salvation is not first and foremost about you. Now it, it, benefits you yes absolutely right there's blessings now and into eternity for you right it's love for you that drives it but even underneath that love for you comes god's greater desire for his glory to be made much of in the world this is ephesians chapter one right he calls us his own a people for his own possession why to the praise of his glorious grace it's about him The entire Bible tells that thread. The entire Bible is not look at people because they're awesome. The entire Bible is what? Look at God. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he will do and look at what he has done. The scriptures are about the glory of God. And so when he claims us as his own possession, as his people, he will not share the throne of our hearts with those who are supposed to be set apart for him. This is James 4. He says it very clearly. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He yearns jealously for the glory due his name from his people. So he will not compromise. He will not share the throne with the things we want to just, oh, they're little. We'll just kind of ease them in there. Second reason is because he wants to protect us from destruction. He wants to protect us from destruction. We say this all the time around here as Citizens, is that the way of Jesus is not simply the right way, it's the best way. It's the good way. It's the way that leads to flourishing. Now, not necessarily how we always think about flourishing, meaning comfort and ease, but it's the way that leads to the better life, the life that is truly life, to use the words of the scriptures. So part of why Jesus hates compromise is that he doesn't want us to destroy our lives. And here's the reality of compromise. Every compromise starts small, but it never ends there. Every compromise starts small, but it always ends in destruction. Because here's how compromise works. Step one, compromise a little bit. Step two, it's not enough, so we increase it just a little bit. Step three, we increase it a little bit more. Step four, we start to justify it away to try to push aside the Holy Spirit in our conscience. And step five is destruction. I mean, think about it, right? Think about about destroyed friendships. No destroyed friendship ever starts with the blow-up fight, right? Where does it start? Ah, Just a little bit of gossip. Ah, Just like a a little bit of bitterness that I'm not going to forgive them for. Ah, Just like a little bit of bad talking them to somebody else. A little seed of frustration that we leave undealt with. Think about addiction to pornography, right? It never starts there. We don't wake up one day and suddenly we're addicted. What does it start with? Ah, A little TV show I probably shouldn't watch, but everybody's doing it. Ah, maybe just a little extra glance at something. Think about marriages that get blown up. Right? They never start there. They end in sadness and grief and pain, but they start with that little bit of unforgiveness, that little bit of selfishness, that little bit of lack of self-sacrifice. Every compromise left unchecked, church, it ends in destruction. It ends in pain. And in case you're like, okay, he's exaggerating for preacher effect. I know too many of these stories. I've been in ministry, next summer will be a decade of ministry, which is nuts. And I'm getting to that point now in pastoral ministry, that I, the list of people that I know who have failed their way out of ministry has almost passed the list of people I know that are still in it. And it is really hard to get a text at this point, just about every four to six months of, hey, I got some really bad news about so and so that I need to fill you in on. I mean, just, oh gosh. Three weeks ago, Monday afternoon, just prepping a sermon on suffering in Smyrna, and I get a call that a, a friend of mine, who I've walked alongside in various capacities for years, stealing money from his church, three years, got caught, blew up his life. He's out of ministry. it never starts there, right? Like, it never starts there. I remember back in January, December, January, hearing about another friend of mine who, who I walked even closer with and, and hearing what happened with him and how he failed out of ministry. And I remember that one in particular just rattling me so much. And I remember talking to Lindsay about it and what she said, which I think is a really fair and true and accurate response. It's like, man, this just feels like it could happen to any of us. And I remember just processing that with a friend of mine who's also in pastoral ministry, and we were just talking about it. And and what he said to me, I've been thinking about still to this day, and I I come back to it probably once a week, which is no exaggeration. And he said this, he said, Tim, on the one hand, I, I think what Lindsay is saying is true. Like on the one hand, sin is deceiving, and it can catch any of us, and any of us can give in to the deception of our hearts and blow up our lives, pastors or not. Like this is not like a unique pastor thing. You can blow up your life with unchecked compromises too. But he said this, and I I thought it was so helpful. He said, here's the thing though, that sin didn't catch him one day as if he was just kind of going through life and surprise, moral failure. There were years of unconfessed, unrepented of compromises that led to that point. I, I was thinking about it this morning and I was just chewing on this sermon and praying for you guys and praying for this time, and I was reminded of this quote, maybe you've heard it before. Um, It's pretty popular in like Christian circles, but it, it says this. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You ever heard that? Anybody heard that before? Do you know who said it? A guy who had a five decade international global ministry who a few months after he died, it came out that he had tens, if not hundreds of sexual abuse allegations destroyed his reputation, destroyed his legacy, destroyed his family, destroyed his whole ministry. Even if you think you can take the compromise secret to the grave, destruction will always come. And I don't, I don't say this to frighten you. I don't say this to, to make you all nervous. I say this because it's the language of the scriptures. Look at James 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The 16th century theologian John Owen would say it, sin will always go as far as you let it. So with every little compromise, we just give it more ground and more ground and more ground and left unchecked, it ends in destruction. And so Jesus says, I love you too much to let you destroy yourself. I love you too much to let this go all the way to where it's going to go. And so his command, verse 16, is very clear. Therefore, repent. Repent. Stop compromising and repent. What does this mean? Repentance means we agree with God that little compromises are not little. That's the first step of repentance. We just agree, hey, this little thing that I want to minimize and justify and talk around and say is no big deal, and I don't even really want to confess it to my group because there's other bigger and more important things going on. First step of repentance is just acknowledging maybe this is a bigger deal than I realize. Maybe this is actually an invitation back to the Lord. And then what do we do? Step two. First, we agree little compromises are not little. Second, we confess readily, openly, and honestly to God and to others. We put a huge emphasis on confessing to others here at Citizen's Church. It's part of our regular routine. We do at least once a month in all of our groups. And folks always ask us, does that mean we don't think it's important to confess to God? And we say no. We just know that with the deceptiveness of our hearts, I want to confess to anyone and everyone as often as possible. Because <laughs> I need that protection for my soul. Why would I not afford myself the beauty and the gift of God's people caring for me, watching out for me? Third thing we do, repentance means we make a plan to fight against our sin. So repentance means we agree with God, little compromises are not little, we confess readily, openly, and honestly to God and others, then we make a plan. What's that common definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? Is that not how we try to fight our sin? Okay, I know for the last 10 years this has not worked, but wait, maybe one more time take it seriously. We make a plan. Okay, maybe I need to actually change some drastic things in my life. Maybe I need to actually stop going to this place that I know is going to be triggering for me. Maybe I need to actually finally get rid of my iPhone and all of my friends are just going to have to live with my green text messages for a while. All right. Take a needed aggressive step against sin. And the number four, repentance means we take a step of action towards God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We agree with God. Little compromises are not little. We confess openly, readily, and honestly to God and others. We make a plan, and then we take a step in the plan. That's the command from Jesus. Stop compromising with the teachings of Balaam. Stop compromising with the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Stop compromising with your sin. How? By repenting. But again, again, if you stop there, burden. If you stop there, legalism. I was talking to a guy in our church last week about the sermon, and I said what I love about these letters and what I love about being a gospel-centric church, a church centered on the good news of Jesus, is that we can hit as hard as we need to in sermons because we know we're always going to end with the levity of the good news of grace. And here's what it is in Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, you might be like, I don't get it. Let's talk about it. Manna. Manna, back in the story of Exodus, was literal bread from heaven. So when God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they're wandering hungry through the wilderness, he rains down bread, manna, from heaven to provide for their needs. It's manna that Jesus refers back to in the book of John on the Sea of Galilee when he tells the giant crowd, I am the bread of life. Eat for me and you will never go hungry again. And then he says a white stone white stone, as as I mentioned, Pergamum was the host of the Olympic Games for two times in the decade leading up to this letter. And what happened is if you ran in one of the races and you won, you were given a little white marble stone. And that white marble stone was your entrance ticket to the giant party for the elite citizens of Pergamum that would be held after the Olympic Games. The white stone of entrance, a ticket of welcome. And then he says that white stone that Jesus gives has a new name, a new identity given from Jesus himself. And so notice this. I want you to see this in Revelation 2. What we are looking for in every compromise is what sin offers but cannot give. All right, see, see this in your heart, right? Everything we are looking for in compromise is what sin offers but cannot give. Satisfaction. Does that not drive so much of our compromise? My soul is just craving and longing for something to satisfy it. It's like I wake up in the morning and my soul is just looking for something to worship and find a home in. Anybody else, just me? It's like I just wake up and it's like, okay, I need something that's just gonna fill this gnawing in my soul that just doesn't seem to be satisfied. What about intimacy, welcome? Is that not so much of the driving force of our compromise? I just want someone to look at me and tell me I'm loved. Like, I just want someone to look at me and tell me I matter, and that I'm okay, and that I belong, and that I'm at home. What about identity? I want somebody to declare over us, you're enough. You're good. I've declared something else over you. So sin offers us these things, right? Satisfaction, intimacy, identity. And yet, if you look at the pattern of compromise in our lives, the reason why we have to keep compromising is because it always keeps it out of reach. That's why compromises never stop at little compromises because it, it scratches that itch for a little bit. It's like just enough for a little bit and then you need a little, more, a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And yet look at what Jesus offers to those who conquer, to those who long for satisfaction, he offers bread from heaven. To those who long for fulfillment and the longings of their souls to be satisfied, he offers himself the greatest satisfaction that will never leaves our souls yearning again. To those who want intimacy and welcome, he offers a white stone entrance ticket. You get a future in the kingdom of God. I'm looking for someone to tell me that I can be at home. And Jesus says, here's the entrance ticket to home. You don't need to compromise. There's a welcome, an eternal welcome, an eternal feast. That's how the book of Revelation ends, right? Revelation 21 and 22. It's this one big party for everybody who worships and follows Jesus. He says, you want the white stone entrance tickets for the one who's, who conquer? And then he gives him a new identity. You know how you're trying to earn something, be validated? You want somebody to speak over you that you are okay? How about a new name from Jesus himself? Loved. Daughter, son, holy, forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, welcome, sealed, beloved, mine. I mean, pick. You get all of them. Christ offers to the one who conquers all the things sin promises but cannot deliver. So here's the question I want to leave us with as we move into our time of response. Here's our question for this week. Where are you compromising with sin? Where are you compromising with sin? Where has the desire for satisfaction and welcome and intimacy and belonging, where have you given that to other things that are not Jesus? Maybe it's a small thing that you're like, okay, I I know that thing. And nobody else really knows the thing because it's not a big deal. Maybe today the invitation for you is to make it a big deal by agreeing with Jesus. It's a big deal. To receive his satisfaction, receive his welcome and his identity. Maybe for you, you're like, I don't have a category for this because you haven't even put your faith in Jesus yet. And I'm so glad you're here. One of the reasons we're a church is so that you can encounter the teachings of Jesus and put your faith in him. And so if that's you, if you're like, I've never even trusted in Jesus, then today can be that day for you. Today can be the day of salvation where you put your faith in him, trust in him as the one who offers these beautiful things like satisfaction, intimacy, welcome, and forgiveness from God. So I just want to leave us with that question. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but I want us to wrestle with that. Where are you compromising with sin? These are hard words, and part of the danger of hitting hard words quickly is that we can rush real fast past them. And so I just want to give us a minute to ask the Lord, let the Holy Spirit speak. Lord, where am I compromising with my sin? What's that thing big or little, that I'm refusing to hand over to you. I'm refusing to confess. I'm refusing to deal with. I keep having good intentions to deal with it, but I'm just not. So let me just give us a moment of silence and prayer, and then we'll respond together. So come, Holy Spirit, speak to your people. Lord, show us where we're compromising. Where you call us to holiness? Lord, remind us of your grace that actually can provide everything sin offers but doesn't deliver on. Lord, we thank you for Revelation 2. We thank you for your word. We thank you for difficult admonitions and convictions that you give to Pergamum, Lord, I pray that they would be convicting to us, that we would see ways we are compromising with our sin, we would see ways in which we are justifying and downplaying and sweeping things under the rug, Lord, and that you call us to a different way, a way of holiness for you. I pray even this week, you would give new insight into our lives of how we're looking for satisfaction and belonging and welcome and intimacy from things that will not give them. And how you offer in Christ Jesus the free gift of a welcome that will not expire, satisfaction that will not run dry, of a name that will not be blotted out. Lord, I pray even today, and I pray this confidently because of the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would break some folks of their compromises. Where well, they came in here ready to do the hour of worship thing and head on to their Sunday, and you came in here to encounter them with your Spirit. change change their lives. So I pray today, even today, Lord, would be a day of repentance and conviction. Lord, well, that even today, somebody would get prayer for the first time. Just one of our prayer team, and it'd be a way that they'd take a step towards freedom, from addiction, from compromise. So we trust you, Lord, to do what only you can do. For sings things in Christ's name, amen.